This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. If you're able, will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Today's scripture is Matthew 5, verses 7 through 12, and that's on 809 and 810 in your pew Bibles. Matthew 5, 7 through 12. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Good morning. Hey, my name's Ron. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, before we jump in, I've got two things. Number one, I really love when it gets so chatty in here during the offering. It makes me very, 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 very happy. Pleased to be in your presence on a beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, the second thing is, if you're a member in our church, you got an email this week. I just wanted to remind you, you should have had an email hit your inbox late this last week, that we are postponing our member meeting that was scheduled tonight to October 9th. And I also want to let you know, if you're in this room and you attend this church and you're, you're, uh, this, is, this is your church family and you aren't yet a mem- member or you've been attending and you want to see what we're about and all that kind of stuff, we want to invite you to be a part of that as well. So it's October 9th. Uh, at 6.30 p.m. in this room, we're going to be hosting a member meeting then. Okay, uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into the text together. God, we come to you in the name of Jesus this morning because of his work, in his grace, in his mercy, in his kindness, in his favor that he has bestowed upon us freely God, all we can do is respond to you. All we can do is respond in lives of surrender and worship and adoration to the grace that you have so magnificently bestowed upon us. Not because of any merit that we have, not because of any work that we bring, not because of any righteousness or goodness that we muster up in ourselves, but because your internal disposition towards us is kindness and mercy and long-suffering. God, you've made a way for us. And so we come this morning, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we come before you boldly, with confidence, sure of our place before you, and we ask that you would speak to us this morning in and through your word. Would you be so kind to us as to give us a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of who you are. God, we don't deserve it. We we can't like jump high enough 
or make enough noise or like beautify ourselves enough to get your attention. You just set it upon us. And so this morning, would you be pleased as we look at these last four aspects of a portrait of a life that you call blessed, as you lay out your value system, as you invite us to a life of wholeness and fullness. God, would you give a spirit of revelation? God, would you grip our hearts and make these things appealing to us? Would you make us long for your ways? Would you make the things of your heart look beautiful and glorious to us? Would we see them as what they are? Would we not see them as these like standards that we have to try to jump up to attain? Would we see them as loving invitations into what it means to be alive? The way of freedom, the way of fullness, the way of satisfaction. God, would you grant us that grace this morning as we come to these? Would you move on our hearts? Would you speak? Would you convict? Would you confront? Would you comfort? All in and through your word for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this morning we're gonna finish our time in the Beatitudes, which are these eight statements at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not gonna do a lot this morning by way of introduction. I've uh, done that over the last couple weeks, but if you're new with us or you need just a really quick refresher, you can go back and look, listen to the last couple weeks where I lay out more introductory material. But the Beatitudes are this, statement at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches what a life in partnership with his grace looks like. They're these statements of what God values. We've, we've talked again and again about every society, every culture, every kingdom has a system of values by which we define worth and success and fulfillment and satisfaction and the kingdom of heaven is no different. At the beginning of this sermon, Jesus lays out for us this portrait of a blessed life, a whole life, a full life. And he invites us, those who would have ears to hear, who have responded to him by faith, he invites us to order and orient our lives around the things that he calls valuable in partnership with his grace. That's what the Beatitudes are. Over the last couple of weeks, we looked at the first four as the, as the entry into these glorious pictures of what God's value system looks like. And this morning, we're going to look at the last four here, uh, Lord willing. So we're going to dive right in. Look at what it means to be merciful. Look at Roman numeral two if you've got the notes. So to be merciful is to possess a disposition that seeks to treat others in tenderness, in tenderness and in gentleness, even in the midst of weakness, in the midst of immaturity, in the midst of sin. Now, I wanna say this from the jump. To be merciful is not to be cavalier about sin or to be casual about sin. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus takes sin very seriously. Right To uh, create a context to show his mercy in the midst of sin cost him his own life. 
That's how seriously he takes sin. This is not to just be casual or cavalier about sin, like, oh, we'll just let it lay under the mercy of God. This is, this is a call for us who have tasted of God's mercy in Christ Jesus to be conformed to his way of dealing with us in tenderness in the midst of those things. Throughout scripture, mercy is, we see again and again, one of the primary attributes right at the heart of God. It's one of God's defining characteristics. When God reveals his glory to Moses on the mountain, when he declares his name over Moses, he declares that he's merciful. He is said in the scripture to take delight in showing mercy. It's something he loves to do. He's full of delight in demonstrating mercy. And we are invited to see that his mercy ultimately triumphs over judgment. Look at just a couple of these scriptures here. Exodus 34, this is Moses on the mountain. He goes up and is standing before the Lord and he, he has this bold claim before the Lord, show me your glory, which I think is one of the most remarkable moments in all of scripture. Moses has seen God do the 10 plagues in Egypt. He's seen him part the Red Sea. He's seen the Shekinah glory of God descend in the wilderness and lead them like a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. And he walks up on the mountain and he goes, I think there's more. Show me your glory. And God goes, here's what I'll do. I will let my goodness pass before you. And in doing so, I will declare to you my name, meaning what I'm like, which means that God's glory is not just his raw power demonstrated in miraculous signs and wonders. His glory is his character and his disposition. When he says, I will demonstrate my glory to you, I'm going to tell you who I am. And he declares the inner workings of his heart. This is what he says. The Lord descends in a cloud and stands with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. It's the first thing he says about himself merciful and gracious. Micah 7, verse 18, who is a God like you, the prophet prays, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in, the ESV says, his steadfast love. Other translations will translate this mercy because he delights in showing mercy. You want to know something God delights to do? Demonstrate and show his mercy. He shows his very character and his very nature in this. Look at the top of page two. The mercy of God we see can also be called his compassion or this like uh, idea of pity, but not, not, not pity in a belittling, belittling way, but like a, a yearning that moves toward can be seen as the primary characteristic of God's heart that provokes him to act. So this isn't just a feeling of like sentiment. This is a stirring in God's heart that moves him to action. All throughout the scripture, you cannot separate the mercy of God from action, concrete 
works that he does. This is what moves him though. The inner workings of God's soul are merciful and that moves him to act in the place of need. Throughout the Bible, there's a clear correlation between the disposition of God's heart and concrete acts of his mercy displayed toward his people. So Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, invites the kingdom people, the new covenant people who he's making into his image by calling them to follow him and join him in his way as the kingdom is breaking in. He says, blessed are those who are merciful. Those that are disposed in a growing way and who reach by the grace of God to be conformed to the very likeness of God the Father, who is merciful. Blessed are those who are merciful. Those that have received the free mercy of God's saving power are joined to Christ. In walking with Christ, those who have tasted mercy are invited to become like him and express mercy in their lives towards others. This does not warrant or earn the mercy of God to them, but rather demonstrates that we have experienced the free gift of grace in him. Now, the reason I say that is this is one of those statements in the Beatitudes. We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. This would be one that you'd be tempted to read as this if-then statement. If you're merciful, then God will be merciful to you. And you might sit back and scratch your head and go, this sounds completely contradictory to the whole of the rest of the New Testament that says God is merciful towards me uh, when I did not deserve it. In my sinfulness, when I was an enemy, he came and found me and he reached out and displayed the love of Christ even when I hated him you would think it might make you scratch your head. So what Jesus is not saying here is, if you show mercy, then you get mercy. That's not what he's saying. Again, he's painting a picture of a person that is walking in the way of true life. And he's painting a picture of what that person's life looks like. And he says, the new kingdom type person is merciful. Now, why are they merciful? They're merciful, we see, throughout the rest of the scripture because they have tasted the mercy of Christ themselves. It's not this is earning them God's mercy. This is they have tasted the free gift of grace in Christ Jesus. And because of that, their lives have been transformed and they no longer have to fight for their own rights. We no longer have to fight for our own way. And we can behave in a disposition of tenderness and gentleness towards others because we know we have it way better than we deserve. That's what Jesus is getting at. It's demonstrated really well in this parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18. I'm not going to read the whole of it, but the, the, the essence of the parable is there's a story where there's a man who goes before a judge and he has this debt that could not ever be repaid. And he pleads with the judge, the king, can you forgive me? And he receives mercy. And that servant turns and he walks out and he comes up against one of his buddies who owes him like a nickel, right? He has this million dollar debt 
And then he comes face to face with somebody that owes him five bucks. And the guy goes, I can't pay you back right now. And he exacts absolute justice on this man. And the point of the parable is this. That first man did not fully receive and experience mercy. How could he, having experienced such kindness and favor, turn and be so exacting outside of that? Jesus is painting for us this way of how mercy works. We touch the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, and we are changed to become merciful. Look at letter E. I just want to outline some ways that mercy expresses itself. So what does it mean to be merciful, right? When Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, what does that look like in our lives? I've got a handful of things here for us. Number one, it looks like us growing with a spirit of tenderness in the face of immaturity and weakness. How we deal with others in the face of their own immaturity and weakness demonstrates our mercy, right? It either demonstrates how exacting we are or it demonstrates how merciful we are. We desire to be a type of people that is gentle with others while they're in process, while they're immature, while they're weak, while they're being conformed. Why? Because you want that both from others, but ultimately from your father. Think about the infinite gentleness and tenderness that Jesus bestows upon you while you're still in process. Think about if every time you came up short and you walked in immaturity or in weakness and he stood over you like an exacting father and said, what in the world are you doing? I can't believe that you would do that again. Right? That's not how he deals with us. He deals with us with gentleness and tenderness all along the way. I love David's statement in Psalm 18, verse 35. As he's remembering how God has dealt with him, he says, his gentleness made me great. His gentleness, not his power, not his severe majesty, his gentleness. You want to know how God made me great before him? He was gentle with me when I didn't deserve him to be. When I deserved him to be exacting and to put his thumb on that thing and expect me to get my act together, he showed me gentleness. When we experience that and we ask God to conform us into that, we begin to express mercy by being tender with others in the midst of their weakness and immaturity. Number two, we're gentle towards those who mistreat us. This turns it up just a little bit. One of the greatest places we express mercy is in response to others who mistreat us. This could come through slander, reproach, opposition, oppression, sin against us. Jesus calls us in these situations to bless, to pray for, to do good. Even to people who are your enemy, he says, in order that we would be like our Father in heaven, who is merciful towards those who hate him. I put Luke 6 
there. Go and read that when you have some time. At the end of Luke 6, as he's walking out, uh, having a posture of gentle disposition towards those who are your enemies, he says, bless them, do good to them, pray for them. As he lays all this out, he gives the summary statement. Why are we to walk this way? Because we are to be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. So the whole thing where Jesus talks about God in heaven lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. He lets the sun come up in the morning. He's saying, hey, nobody in the world deserves that God would continue to order the world in such a way that they receive any good from it. In our sin, you deserve, I deserve the moment we rebel against God, we deserve to be cut off from him that moment forever. And the sun still comes up tomorrow upon people who hate him. He is merciful, right? And we are called to in kind show mercy. Three, we show compassion for those who are suffering. We demonstrate mercy by seeking to help those who are hurting and suffering. The heart of Jesus towards the sick, the hurting, the needy was the impetus for his healing and deliverance ministry. You can look at Matthew uh, 14, 14. There's this relationship you see in the gospel of Matthew where Jesus looks out on the crowds and it says he was moved in his kidneys with compassion. Therefore, he healed them. Right? So Jesus was moved towards the suffering and the pain of the world because of his mercy, because of his compassion. So one of the ways that we can seek to inhabit the merciful disposition of our Father is in the places where we see brokenness and suffering and hurting. We ask him to move. We come close and we seek to see him move in those places. Number four, we're generous in grace for those who stumble in sin. One of the most difficult areas to practice mercy is in the face of sin. We're called to be merciful towards those who experience significant failures and seek to help them in tenderness. This demonstrates a heart that leads us towards forgiveness, restoration, and a willingness to let love cover a multitude of sins. I just want to say something really fast. This is utterly opposite of what we are told to do in our world right now. Right now, we are told that when someone wrongs you, when someone grieves you, when you experience someone's opposition against you, what are you called to do out there? Exact it right? Exact justice now. Gather your troops. Garner support and sympathy. Tell everybody everything. Blessed are the merciful. They will receive mercy, right? There is a call in the face of being wronged to embody our obedience to Jesus by entrusting that to him and demonstrating mercy in those places. Number five, all those are really tough. This one actually might be just as tough as all of them. 
we're patient towards those who offend us. And I don't mean offend us like sin against us. I mean like bug us. Each and every day, we're presented with a multitude of places to express mercy in the face of our preferences being offended. We show mercy towards those who annoy us, bother us, or step on our toes by not operating toward them in a critical spirit. You want to know you're not operating in mercy? Watch the places where you have a critical spirit. Not belittling them or slandering, making fun of. Hey, sarcasm is one of the most counter-merciful ways of using your tongue. It is undercutting someone's shortcomings or things that might annoy us or bug us. And we do it with a smile on our face and say, we're just joking. Merciful, to be merciful is to like eat the small stuff, right? Just let certain things, how do we respond in those places with tenderness and gentleness? We can be merciful there. Look at the top of page three. We generally give mercy to the measure that we understand the mercy we've received from God. When we are lacking in a merciful disposition toward others, it is a sign that we ourselves are not experiencing. We don't see it clearly. We don't savor it, the abundant mercy that God has bestowed upon us in Christ. The primary way of growing in a merciful disposition is to seek to cultivate a spirit of gratitude. Hey, and here's how you do that. No matter where you are, we can be grateful because we have it way better than we deserve. We have it way better than we deserve. Again, because of our sins, each one of us, every single one of us, The moment we sin, we deserve an eternity separated from the living God. We deserve it. That moment, death and eternal separation from him. Anything that we have outside of that is sheer mercy. Right? So we can cultivate gratitude. How do you cultivate a spirit of like disposed mercy in your life? You look at the reality of how heinous your sin is and what it deserves in the standard of God's economy. And you go, the fact that I know you, the fact that the sun comes up today, the fact that I have breath in my lungs is mercy. Thank you for your mercy. You might be walking through something remarkable, remarkably difficult. You can still find places to cultivate gratitude for the mercy of God because we have less than we deserve, which is judgment and eternal separation from him. That's how we cultivate a life of gratitude and mercy. Walking with a merciful spirit requires courage and empowering by God's grace. This is a narrow way 
all of the Beatitudes are this. You know, later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, hey, the, this way is narrow. It costs a lot and not very many people walk on it. There's a big, open, wide path over there that's really easy. And it leads to destruction. This way is narrow. It's costly to forgive, to show compassion, to be gentle. It flies in the face of our natural reactions, right? When we're bumped, what do we do? We criticize, right? We belittle. We want justice, right? We got this big justice chip in us, right? Jesus was angry. Blessed are the merciful, right? Our quick quick reactions to those places, they come easy to us. This requires the empowering grace of the Spirit to walk in this way. But this is the way to life. I just want to tell you, to not be merciful is to live in bondage. It is to live in bondage. What goes on in your soul is bondage. You are enslaved to bitterness, to resentment, to exactingness. Walking in the way of mercy is the only way to be free. It is the only way to be free. So Jesus puts this in front of us and invites us. Come and yoke yourself to me and learn the merciful way. The next one, he moves from mercy to purity of heart. So to walk in purity of heart is to have like a singular or integrous uh, pursuit in our heart before the Lord. This is expressed primarily in our thoughts, our desires, our motivations, growing in purity before the eyes of God. With this beatitude, like with all of them, we have to remember Jesus is not setting up an if-then relationship. He's not telling you, purify yourself and then you'll see me. That's not what he's saying. He's showing a picture, again, of those who have tasted the grace of God and what is formed in them as they experience him. We must understand these, these are a composite picture of a person who has encountered God's grace. The pure in heart, therefore, are also those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn. And what I mean by that is those who come face to face with, they have no ability to make themselves pure before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Into that situation, God says, I will give my righteousness, my purity, my grace. Jesus invites us to both rest in the free gift of purity that we've received in Christ by faith and to seek to bring our holiness to greater completion by pursuing conformity to his will. I'll let you read those scriptures on your own. Look down at letter E. I just want to fly through this really quickly. Purity of heart consists of, like I said, desires, thoughts, and motives. We ask God to cultivate and conform us to have greater singular focus of our pursuits in our lives. How we do this is we repent for selfish and worldly desires and ask God to expel them or replace them with greater loves. Right? Our desires, what we long for, what our affections are set toward are distorted in sin. And so what we do is in the places where we confront that, 
we repent, we say, God, again, I've loved the world. I've loved the lusts of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. I've loved those things. Will you forgive me and will you take those loves and fill me with a new love? Fill me with greater desires. Fill me with affections that are pure and oriented towards you. That's how we cultivate desires before God. I, I want to encourage all of you I've got there, go read. There's an old uh, pastor named Thomas Chalmers, and he has a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a Greater Affection. And the whole point is we can't just change our loves, right? I can't just pull my bootstraps up and choose to love something different. I have to have my disordered affections pushed out by a more pure affection. And we ask God to do that by his grace. So we don't cultivate purity of heart by just making ourselves more clean. What we do is in the places where we see our disordered affections, we repent for them and we ask God to fill us with a new affection to overwhelm us with the beauty of Christ, with the majesty of Christ, with the joys of knowing him, what the psalmist says, taste and see his goodness, that we would taste that and order our affections toward him. That's what we pray. We also see this in our thoughts. Our thought life is one of the primary places where we seek to cultivate and walk in greater purity of heart. What we t spend time meditating on demonstrates and gives expression to what we love, what we value, what we desire. Now, this is just a quick statement. I don't have time to like do a whole sermon on meditation. But every one of us meditates on something, right? You spend the waking hours of your day ruminating on things. It's how you were wired, God made your mind to work, right? You think about things. You think about what's going on in your job. You think about that relationship. You think about the place where you got wronged and bumped and what you're gonna do in response to it. And you've got all these imaginary conversations you've run in your mind and the tape, you're running it over and over and over again. That's meditation. The Bible invites us to take those thoughts and re, uh, to put different ones in there to take the truths of God's word and in the places where we are prone to ruminate and rehearse and rework and imagine things, to ruminate and rehearse and imagine things that God has revealed to us. That is meditating on his word. So it's taking his word and seeking to fill our mind with it again and again and again. We long for our internal world to be devoted to seeking Christ and his kingdom. The third place this is expressed is in our motives. We ask God to shine his light into our motivations behind our behaviors and our pursuits. Look at Psalm 19. This is the prayer of the psalmist there. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. He goes on and he says, let the words of the, my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. 
my rock and my redeemer. It's this prayer, come and search the innermost workings of my motivations, why I'm doing things and orient them so where I'm motivated by your glory, your kingdom, your face alone, not my selfish desires or ambitions or what I long for. Would you reorient my motivations? To be pure in heart is a foretaste of possessing what Jesus is gonna call the greater righteousness of Matthew 5.20. This means we seek to grow in sincerity before God and not behave in a way that demonstrates hypocrisy. Now, I'm gonna just give this as a little thing. We're, we're gonna hit on it a lot in the coming weeks. Hypocrisy is not being weak. I just wanna make that really clear. There's this general idea that to be hypocritical is to like believe something and then stumble, right? It's what like the world around says. I don't like Christians because they're hypocrites, right? Like they say one thing and then they fall short of it. That's not being a hypocrite. That's called being immature. You can be sincere and immature. That is true. To be a hypocrite is to promote something that you have no inner intentions of walking toward. That's being a hypocrite. It's a name that you're alive, but inside you're dead. That is being a hypocrite. It's going, it's a whitewashed tomb. It's putting on in front of everybody. This is what I'm about. This is who I am. And then in the inner recesses of your heart, there is no desire to be that. That's being a hypocrite. Growing in purity of heart is growing in our sincerity in the inner workings of who we are where no one sees our thinking, our motivations, our desires, asking God to conform them to his ways. The promise for those is that they will see God. This is unbelievable and remarkable. And this happens in two ways. We see God in this age through the eyes of faith. This is absolutely true. If you rest your faith in Christ Jesus, how you orient your life in faith is seeing God. You don't see him through sight yet. You see him through faith. It's dim. It's like a mirror that you're having to squint and, and look into a cloudy glass to make it out. But it's still seeing him. We see him through the eyes of faith, but we also will see him in the age to come when we're welcomed into full participation of his life. All right, we're gonna have to fly. Sorry about this. Peacemakers. Jesus then invites us to live in a manner that seeks to avoid creating strife and works towards bringing redemption in reconciliation and repair in a broken and fractured world. As those who have received peace in Christ, we are called to live out pursuing peace in every area of our lives. Look at, the, look at letter C. I have three ways this could happen. Uh, I think people go quickly only to uh, relationships here. Um, I think there's several ways we see in the scriptures what it means to make peace in the world as those who have been brought into peace with God. The first is we partner with Christ in the ministry of reconciliation. Hey, the greatest 
place where there is no peace in the world is in those who are enemies of God and marching headlong toward an eternity separated from him. That is the greatest place where there is no peace in the world. And to walk as a peacemaker in the world is to give bold witness to the glory of God's gospel of Jesus Christ. That in Christ Jesus, he is reconciling the world to himself. And we have been given the privilege to walk with him as ministers of that reconciliation in the world, right? So we can see all sorts of kindness and gentleness and all those kind of things worked out in like a copacetic peace in the world. But if people do not come to know Jesus, there is no peace. That really matters. Peacemaking is not just about being friendly with people. Peacemaking is saying God is at work bringing restoration and reconciliation and peace in the world. And I have been given the grace to be a minister of reconciliation with him. So I give bold witness to the gospel. That is making peace. I just want that to be really clear. Because I won't have much time to talk about it. But... The very next thing, how do I know that this doesn't just mean being friendly with everybody? The very next beatitude is, blessed are you when you're persecuted, when you're hated, when you're reviled, when you're mocked, when you're opposed. This does not mean that everyone is happy with you. That's not blessed are the peacemakers. Peace ultimately has to do with rightly ordered existence under God. And we have been given a ministry of reconciliation to give bold witness to the reality that in Christ Jesus, God is remaking the world. And we are to call people into that through faith and repentance. That is one of the primary ways we make peace in the world. Okay, second, we pursue growth as peacemakers, we see in the New Testament, by living quiet and orderly lives that seek to embody God's design, his wisdom and his character in the places where he has put us. This first uh, one is from 1 Thessalonians. I'm sorry that I didn't put that on there. But this is Paul's uh, charge to the Thessalonians. Aspire to live, a, live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. One of the ways we make peace in the world is by seeking to live a quiet and ordered life. I wish I had a long time to talk about this. Living into the design that God has created for our vocations, for our families, for our church community, for our lives in the world are meant to be orderly and quiet. When I mean quiet, I mean we're not making a big ruckus about everything. We're not like running around... uh, yelling all the time. Now, you're like, Ron, what? 
We live orderly before the face of God and we bring his order and his peace to bear in the places where he has put us. And that will oftentimes look way smaller and way less significant than you want it to and than I want it to. I want it to make a big splash and be a big deal and all these kind of things. And I think the Lord would invite us to, hey, bring order in the places where he's put you. Live quietly. Look at the inner disposition of your heart. How does your heart live at peace in this world? Live there and you will be a peacemaker. The last one is we do pursue peace over time in response to wounded and fractured relationships. This requires time, energy, patience, and a commitment to truth. There is a a going forward and seeking to live at peace uh, that is a disposition that longs for restoration and reconciliation, but may not always see it may not always experience it. It may come in time. Like there's lots of patience and endurance and belief that the story isn't over yet, that we have to live in and that tension, but we do seek to do this. Look at letter D. Peace cannot be sought at the expense of truth and righteousness. This is not meant to be an invitation to a false sense of peace that comes at any price. Jesus himself did not do away with the truth as he sought to bring ultimate peace to the world. Look at Matthew 10 right there. Jesus says, don't think I've just come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to cut into the systems of the world and bring conviction and separation. That's the only way that peace will actually come. Jesus doesn't back off on truth so that he can be copacetic with people. That is not peace. That is not peace. The call to seek peace in the world does not mean that we will always experience the fruits of this in every relationship or in every context. There will be places where we will not experience true peace until we see God face to face. And he establishes his kingdom of peace that will know no end. That just invites us into the other Beatitudes again, though. Right? They're kind of this cyclical thing. We pursue it. We may not always see it. And then what do we do? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Man, I can't bring even, even the peace that I would long to see happen. I don't have the power to do it. Blessed are those that mourn. Right? I lament brokenness and pain and places of discord. And I hope with hunger and thirst that the righteousness of God would be made known. They kind of all feed each other. Lastly, enduring persecution. Look at letter B. Jesus, as he closes, he says this last one twice. First, he says it in the same form as the others. And then he expands it and brings it into Blessed are you all who experience this. And then he expands what that means. Persecution takes many forms in this life. Some will be physical, societal, verbal, emotional. This is one of the tactics that the enemy uses 
Um, and it often comes in the seasons where the church is walking free from deception. And I want that to sit on us for a second. In Revelation 13, we get a picture of the two-pronged approach of how the devil fights against the church. The first is through persecution. The second is through deception. I wonder sometimes, this is like a convictional moment that I feel personally. I wonder if there are places where you read through the scriptures and you go, Jesus lays this out in the portrait of the full life. Hey, those that are living according to my new humanity, the kingdom of heaven on the earth, they are persecuted for righteousness sake. Paul goes, anyone that desires to live this way will be persecuted. And then I look at my own life and I go, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean when there's not opposition? What does it mean when there's not places where we are stood against for our bold, firm stand with Jesus? Sometimes I feel the invitation to ask the question, does that mean we have in places ingested the other form of how the enemy attacks the church? There are places where we have lost our true foundation, which is Christ. And we believe things that are not in accordance with his truth and we do not stand full on it. And there I feel the invitation from the Lord to go, ask me to come and restore you there. Ask me to come and shine my light. Ask me to come and remove clouds of deception or clouds of unclarity about who I am and what I'm about and empower you and embolden you to stand in the place where you will be opposed. You will experience opposition. I mean, Jesus says in John 14, we just did this in the spring, if they hated me, what do you think you can expect? What do you think is in front of you? And Jesus, as he closes out this portrait of what it means to look like the people of his new humanity, the new covenant people, he says, blessed are those that experience opposition, hostility, reproach, reviling, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he invites them, letter D, to respond to this with humble and joyful confidence. This is a supernatural grace that God gives to his church to stand firm and endure in the face of immense trial and in the face of difficulty. Amen. We're going to close there. Would you all stand with me? As, as we do every week, we're going to respond through song. 
We're going to come to the table together, receive communion. We have ministers in the room that would love to pray with you and pray for you if there's things that are stirring in your heart this morning. If you'd love someone to stand with you and ask God to move, to, to work in your soul. If there's places like even as we walked through the word, um, let me just instruct you guys on something. If as we walk through things and you have in your soul this like, yeah, 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 I want that. That's the spirit of God. Okay. That's the spirit of God moving. If you go like, mm, oh, I, I want that. I want that. I want more of that. I want to experience that. That is God's spirit at work. You didn't make that, right? Like you didn't make that up. You didn't talk yourself into that. That is the Holy Spirit moving upon you and convicting you or inviting you or any of those kind of things. And one of the beautiful opportunities that we have together as the family of God is to bring one another into those places. And so I get this little weak yes, like, oh, I really want more mercy. I want to be more merciful in my home. I want to be more gentle with those around me. That's what, I want that. There's a beautiful gift that we have to be able to come to one another and go, hey, I, I feel invited by the Lord. I want more mercy. Would you ask the Spirit of God to do that in me? And he moves. He moves. When we ask, he answers. He moves among us. And so don't miss that opportunity either among yourselves or we've got people in the sanctuary every week that would love to stand and pray with you as we do that. But we're gonna come to the communion table as well. The way we do that at Redeemer is you take a piece of the bread, uh, you dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up front in the middle in the balcony, a gluten-free station to my right to your left. This meal is open to any and all who put their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. If you're looking to him for your righteousness, if you're looking to him for your salvation before God and you understand and acknowledge you have no other hope than Jesus Christ alone, we invite you to come and partake of this. Receive of God's grace afresh this morning. And if you're in this room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we're really glad you're here. We want to ask that you not come and take this meal with us. This meal points to the reality. This meal doesn't make you right before God. It doesn't forgive your sins. It doesn't wash you. It doesn't make you pleasing. It is a pointer to the only thing that does Jesus himself. And we remember that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed that our sins might be forgiven and we might have communion with God forever. So we're gonna celebrate that now. Servers, you're welcome to come forward. I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll respond in those ways when we're done. God, we love you this morning and we do thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you reveal yourself God, this morning I ask that as we respond to you, as we respond in faith by coming to the table, as we respond in faith by uh, singing the truth of, uh, of who you are, as we respond in faith by asking one another to pray, I ask that you would move in our midst. Would you speak 
to us? Would you convict us of sin? Would you convict us of your holiness? Would you invite us into greater experiences of your love and your mercy and your tenderness over us? Would you grant us uh, a delight in the fact that you have made us pure before you? Not of our own works, not of our own doing, not of our own righteousness. You have made us pure because of the blood of Jesus. And we delight in that. And so we confidently stand before you. Would you come and establish us in boldness and confidence more this morning? Would you give us your grace? Would you invite us to experience your peace? And would you shine your light in our minds, in our affections? Would you strengthen our wills this morning? For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.